Welcome to episode 134 of The Digital Life, a show about our adventures in the world of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Hey, John. How's it going? Pretty good. So we're wrapping up 2015, which is kind of a surprise to me because the year went by so quickly. Uh, but that seems to be the way things go now that uh, now that I have kids, I blink and... Uh, and another year goes by. So to uh, get going with uh, sort of our, our retrospective of 2015, we're going to do a couple of shows over the over the next few weeks, uh, starting with this one where we talk about some of the uh, top science and technology stories of 2015 and reflect back on the year that went by in a blink. Oh, sounds great. It has gone by quickly too. Um, what what stories have you look you picked up for us today, John? So, if if you remember, uh, about twelve months ago, not quite, um, Sony uh, was hacked by you know what was uh, apparently a group that that might have been right associated with with North Korea, and and it was supposedly in. Uh, Retribution for uh, a movie called The Interview, in which uh, North Korea's leader was, uh, uh, you know, supposed to be assassinated as a part of this uh, this comedy, which, of course, you know, uh, is, you know, sort of patently offensive for them. And so you could see why why they might take offense if they, you know, did or, or perhaps did not do this uh, hack. But it was, you know, very embarrassing for Sony and and spilled a lot of, uh, of their dirty laundry out for, for people to see. Uh, and as a result of that, the, the White House actually approved some sanctions against North Korea, you know, in sort of a limited way, uh, targeting some individuals and uh, some, uh, some groups out of North Korea. But I think this was an important story for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of those was that the the digital world is now a a place where politics and quote cyber warfare and uh, the uh, meeting of those things online in, in in a way that we haven't quite seen before and is now becoming uh, more and more important as uh, uh, data becomes part of of politics and warfare. So I thought it was notable for that reason. Dirk, what was your your takeaway from from the Sony hack, if anything? Yeah, I mean it was it was a, a huge example of what the dangers that hacking can have on a corporation because it was it was really detrimental to Sony. Sony's been attacked in a lot of ways um, online over the last few years, and this was sort of the most public and embarrassing, as you know, salacious. Uh, gossip about big celebrities was coming out as a result of this, you know, between because of the private slanders in email that Sony executives partook. But, you know, for me, this has a little bit of a, a personal connection because, uh, of course, I went to North Korea this year. And mm -hmm. when I was there, um, you know, my my tour, um, I had both sort of a tour guide and a political operative of the state who were feeding me information as, as we were going around. And um, the the political operative, um, he, very very interesting guy, but he um, he made a point of saying, you know, the Sony hack is something that the United States says that North Korea did. He said, look around, North Korea is a little country, so little, so humble. 
could we possibly have done this hack, you know, that the United States says we did? And he said it, and the smile on his face and the twinkle in his eye communicated, <laughs> we hacked the shit out of you, but we're going to deny it, and it sure doesn't look like we should be able to do that, does it? Um, so when that's, I think of the Sony hack, I think of that conversation. That's that's a really funny story. Um, you know, it... In this, along the same lines, uh, another really important story this year from uh, towards the end of the year was the, uh, you know, the group Anonymous declaring war on on ISIS, uh, online war, uh, basically, and and just you know once again showing how the uh, the battle lines have have moved you know to to the world of uh, the digital and and how this. This is evolving very rapidly, and and it's funny. All, all of this seems to me like something out of a William Gibson novel, frankly. Yeah. Uh, which which number one makes <laughs> makes it uh, uh, makes Mr. Gibson look exceptionally prescient, um, and and secondly, uh, we can we can hope that some of the other things in his in his novels don't come uh, uh, don't come true. But you know, the fact remains that the online world is. Uh, exceedingly getting more conflicted and, and dangerous and uh, fraught as as it becomes a uh, 21st century battleground. And, and we, we discussed that uh, anonymous v. ISIS uh, at length in, in one of our podcasts. Did you have any other uh, any thoughts on that? Well, you know, only that, as, as I mentioned, when it first happened, I was really excited about the potential anonymous would have to to contribute to undermining ISIS and prevent it from from slaughtering innocent people. Um, but, you know, your comments that were more skeptical, as time passes, um, I'm becoming more skeptical too. You know, maybe the impact of Anonymous, um, at least in ways that are, um, are, are portrayed by the media that we are given uh, visibility into, certainly are, are sort of less, less impactful than maybe I had hoped. So that's been, for me, it's been disappointing um, that the, the anonymous war on ISIS hasn't uh, hasn't had more of an impact. Yeah, yeah, I, I I can see how how that would be disappointing, and of course we all would hope that uh, uh, the opposite would happen. So let's shift a little bit to the United States and to one of our regulatory agencies, namely the uh, Federal Communications Commission, uh, which passed uh, the, the net neutrality rules. Of course, they're, they're being challenged in court as we speak. Uh, and they reclassified broadband internet as a utility, which uh, essentially means that, uh, you know, you can't uh, restrict access to certain kinds of speech or entertainment or uh, voices online uh, and and favor your trading partners uh, over over those you you might be competing against. So this this is a area that you know is is still up for grabs, and there's all sorts of workarounds that I'm sure the big cable companies will um, and and big internet companies will will find ways to sort of sneak uh, their. Uh, tamping down of, of of broadband to their their competitors. Yeah, you're getting throttled in ways you don't know. Don't kid yourself. Yes, you're getting that's, throttled big time. It's it's both a public and and private battle because there are the things that we see on on the surface, which are 
you know, through the media or, or, um, you know, when we know that we're not getting what we're paying for with, with our internet connection, which we probably notice just about every day. And then there's all the behind the scenes action, whether it's on the, on the political level, whether it's on the uh, industry level, or, or even if it's just uh, industry trying to find new ways around the rules. So I think this is going to be an ongoing story. I think it's an important one. And, you know, it's, it's really, uh, you know, the, the potential negative outcomes for this can be quite frightening, but I think we're going to slowly slip down that slope where uh, broad, uh, broadband gets, uh, um, gets capped uh, by industry, you know, sort of based on, on, you know, whatever they want to do with that. I, I take it that's your opinion as well. I fear it. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that net neutrality wins out. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm always pessimistic about um, the government's ability to limit corporations from decreasing the quality of our life in meaningful ways in exchange for unnecessary and stupid profits for that corporation. So shifting to the, uh, uh, the world of public tech companies, there was a, a very damning expose in the New York Times on our, our friends there at Amazon uh, and the working conditions that uh, where, where white collar workers are, are subject to uh, all sorts of, you know, uh, sort of uh, pressure cooker techniques to, you know, sort of wring every last bit of productivity out of them and, and, and basically turn uh, work-life balance on its head. So you, you know, uh, are only an, an uh, Amazon robot and, and doing the bidding of, of this large corporation. So this, I think, was, um, you know, it, it may not be atypical uh, environment, but because the New York Times, you know, interviewed, you know, 100 or so uh, former Amazon and, and current Amazon employees, and, and it received such uh, sort of high level of notice and was shared around the Internet, I think, you know, in in some respects, it, it was it was very much a. Uh, sort of some negative PR for Amazon in a way that that I've not seen before, um, and, and it's always interesting uh, to reflect on the digital companies having such uh, competitive environments, and then you know on the flip side, uh, you know the face of the company you know is quite different. Yeah. So so this is not as as I said this is not unusual, but the. Uh, sort of the depth and breadth of the investigation for Amazon ma- made it notable yeah. uh, in 2015. Dirk, any surprises there for you? Well, surprises, no. I mean, you know, in, in the high tech space, Amazon being a bad actor as an employer is pretty pretty well known. I think where the real surprise in that story is, is for the general public, because uh, companies like Google and Apple are celebrated for being such wonderful employers. And there's a certain halo that that has put over all of high tech as, you know, go into computer science, go into something that has to do with these Silicon Valley technology companies. And it's going to just be this wild, fun, amazing ride all the time. And that just isn't the case. And, and so Amazon is kind of bringing to light the dark underbelly of the many technology companies that are not um, a haven to work in at all. They are similar to many other non-technology companies that are, you know, going to structure in a way that exploits their 
their workforce um, to bring out the most the most profits. So to me, the big the big thing about this story is that it brought that to light for the masses. Yeah, and I, I uh, you know con- consulted with a friend of mine who is a former Amazon employee, and he said, "Oh, they got it exactly right." Yeah. At least, at least his experience was sort of uh, mirrored there uh, in in that article from the New York Times. Uh, so uh, we seem to be sort of on a uh, um, a march through the the stories of, of bad actors in capitalism. Because the the next story I wanted to highlight uh, was the uh, uh, the massive increase in pricing for a particular pharmaceutical. Uh, which was acquired. It was it was uh, uh, a drug called Daraprim, uh, and so uh, one day it was thirteen dollars and fifty cents a tablet. You may remember this story, yeah. and, and and the next day it was seven hundred and fifty dollars uh, a tablet, uh, ostensibly to fund new research in in, in the area. But uh, notably, the uh, um, the CEO of the company, you know, came from the financial sector and, and in particular from from the hedge fund um, uh, part of that sector. And and this caused all sorts of outrage because I believe this drug was used in the treatment of HIV AIDS patients uh, and was seen as sort of uh, uh, sort of a stable old uh uh, drug that you know was just sort of expected would be used as part of the treatment plans at, at you know all these hospitals and and overnight they're they're having to sort of uh, ration the uh, uh, the tablets because now they're um, some incredible amount more to, to purchase them so you know un- unfortunately it seems like 2015 has given us a lot of examples of capitalists behaving badly what do you think i've been talking about it for 25 years you know <laughs> the world's catching up finally i mean <laughs> capitalism's crazy it doesn't make any sense it's it's a destructive and i think ultimately self-annihilating uh organizing paradigm and i think you know i think every day we're getting closer and closer to the point where it it is something that people really question and and its annihilation becomes um becomes a topic instead of just being taken for granted as the correct and best way to, to organize a society. So our, our last two uh, top stories for 2015 come in the, uh, uh, the science category. And, uh, you know, the, the first one is definitely makes my imagination go wild. And, and that's the, the fact that NASA discovered uh, that there was evidence of flowing water uh, at, at one point on Mars. And, you know, this, I mean, for, for me, sort of growing up with uh, the space program in the, in, in the 80s and watching uh, uh, the space shuttle take off, the, my elementary school would stop all activities and we were all allowed to, you know, watch the launches on, on television. And so that had a big effect on my dreams of seeing humanity, you know, on, on other sort of places than, than this planet, yeah. uh, namely the moon. And of course the next, uh, the next step being, being Mars. But I, I think if you're from that, that science fiction and slash science and technology, uh, background that was so heavily, uh, emphasized during, during the eighties, uh, you, you know, this this harkens back to that and, and makes you feel like uh, sort of anything is possible again. So 
I, I know it's just sort of a simple uh, archaeological discovery, basically, on, on, on Mars, but, but it is really exciting to me personally. Yeah, I mean, John, as you know, you know, we don't we didn't discuss what we were going to talk about here before the mm -hmm. show started. So as soon as you start talking about this, I went and um, retrieved on the Internet a, a poem, one of my favorite poems from Percy Shelley that um, I think will communicate how I feel about this. So the poem is called Ozymandias. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert near them on the sand half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cool command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survived, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So something happened in Mars a long time ago. It's long gone. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll 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 differ on uh, <laughs> we'll differ on that one. But I like the poem quite a bit. Uh, and so, sort of our 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 last and perhaps the one of the most important stories of of 2015 uh, is is about the. Uh, uh, genetic uh, engineering and editing technique called CRISPR-Cas9. Uh, and, uh, you know, earlier in the year, there was uh, a Chinese experiment uh, with, with human embryos, actually, to, to uh, alter the uh, uh, DNA of human embryos. Uh, now, these were non-viable embryos, but nonetheless, uh, there was this uh, ethical... Uh, firestorm, basically, that uh, these Chinese scientists had, had, had done this. And, you know, just recently, the Center of Gen uh, for Genetics and Society uh, made a statement that, that basically said that, that human genome editing uh, was crossing the line in terms of uh, using that, that uh, scientific ability to sort of pre-program children for their parents' desirements. And that, you know, the, the treatment of disease was acceptable, but the alteration of, of human beings and uh, those changes that can be passed down uh, generation by generation, uh, that that was uh, venturing into uh, ethically difficult territory. And, and this group was of, of concerned scientists uh, came out against that. But we are, you know, fully into the, uh, uh, the genetic engineering uh, phase of, of human technology, albeit at the beginning of it, yeah. but we we have we have stepped through the uh, uh, you know through that boundary and and we're now in in some some uncharted territory. I, I think that's both the Chinese experiment and and sort of the ethical controversy around it, um, and, and the fact that this is moving so quickly, uh, and society is definitely not not ready to be. Uh, 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 you know, ready, ready, ready to be absorbing this technology. Uh, you know, we talk about this all the time with with uh, our emerging tech discussions, but this is moving at a pace that even even myself, as someone who's familiar with it, um, you know, I'm 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 really startled by that. How about, how about you, Dirk? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the speed with which, you know, the modern emerging technologies have emerged and the impacts that they're having on the world has been has been startling as we rapidly change from a world of, of science fiction into, you know, science fact. And, um, I, you know, like I've said before, I mean, I think I think that a lot of the ethics questions have been asked and answered. Like when we've had the opportunity to augment ourselves um, we've taken it, whether it be plastic surgery, whether it be, you know, um, the, like the legs of Oscar Pistorius, um, whether it be a pacemaker, whether it be surgeries or medicines to to get past um, diseases. I think it's all asked and answered. So, um, you know, we're going to be, you know, designing our babies, I think, in the very short future. Um, asked and answered, asked and answered, because when when it comes down to, OK, um, you know, this baby either could have hemophilia or could not have hemophilia. There's there's going to be no argument that that gene shouldn't be mucked with to get rid of hemophilia. I mean, you might have the religious radicals who are arguing against it, but it's it's asked and answered. I mean, we're we're heading headlong into this uh, into this world. We just need to, to strap in and get ready. So, listeners, uh, we hope you enjoyed the. Uh, our picks for the top stories of, of 2015. If, if you've got uh, uh, your own ideas, please, please don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter. And remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com. That's just one L in the digital life and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody. So it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. Uh, and if you want to follow us on Twitter, uh, I'm at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at goinvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at dnemeyer, that's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R, or email me, Dirk, at goinvo.com. So that's it for episode 134 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>